Yeah, Gunsmoke ran for 20 years and has 480 episodes. Wow. Yeah. It's not quite soap opera levels, as I, you know, always point out. There's like 24,000 episodes of General Hospital. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or uh, Supernatural. There's like 740 episodes of Supernatural. Have you seen them all? Yes. Yeah, I watched every season. It's 15 seasons, and it's like 23 episodes a season. Wow. That's like old school TV. And they're and they're hour long apps. Uh, <laughs> and this guy's never seen, you know. I've never seen there Mulholland will be blood. Drive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got weird. I got weird caps, man. I know it. We, I mean, we all do. Yeah. We all do. And that's what I appreciate about you. You know, you're you. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, oh, oh. The truth is, guys, starting to get on my nerves. Oh, you want to crown them? You crown them, yeah. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and as always, I'm here with... Ryan Saunders. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast where one of the hosts picks a topic and the other two hosts pick films in response to that topic. And we get on here and talk it out. It is episode 28, and it was my week to pick the topic. And we've been lost in the desert on the gauntlet a lot recently these uh, past few weeks. And so I thought just elementally we needed to switch it up. And so the topic for this week was dangerous when wet. And I was thinking maybe, maybe the boys will bring me something nice like a Esther Williams bathing beauties picture. Uh, And instead We have a documentary about a flood and an erotic thriller. So (laughs) quite the pairing, gentlemen. And uh, as always, I got to say, you know, I I thought this was going to be cursed, but I think it's kind of blessed in certain ways. I'll be honest. I think there's an interesting connection between the films and how they deal with and use water and the similarities between them. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. So why don't you guys tell me what you brought to the table? Andy, why don't you go first? You know, when you when you selected the topic, um, I, you know, at first had sort of thought about some some great movies that take place on the ocean and you know, great movies about sailors and the Navy and all that stuff. But but then I sort of reflected on the fact that I think two weeks in a row I'd picked movies about like Red Army soldiers in war. So I really needed to switch <laughs> it up. So then I reflected on it a little bit more and, and I thought, well, maybe I'm going to go a little bit more metaphorically, you know, really lean into the title of this one, Dangerous When Wet. And um, though my film does feature uh, quite a bit of water at certain moments, you know, rain, swimming pools, showers, that sort of thing, there's a a very different kind of moisture that also I think pervades uh, much of the film that I chose, which is Richard Rush's 1994 erotic thriller, The Color of Night. This is 
of course, a for those who know, a, a very notorious film on on certain levels. Um, it was technically the first Disney film or a film associated with Disney that was released in an NC-17 version. Um, and that is because this movie is very sexy. Uh, there's a lot of just fucking in this movie. So, uh, like I said, I, I took it, I think, a little bit more poetically uh, this time around. Anyway, for those who don't know, the film stars Bruce Willis as Dr. Bill Kappa, who is, when uh, we open, a, a successful psychoanalyst in New York City. However, in the opening, there is a very traumatic event that he experiences. Uh, one of his patients, in the middle of a session, throws herself out of the window of his office and some, you know, high rise in New York City and just goes crashing down to the pavement. And this really messes him up. So he decides he's got to go clear his head. He's got to go clear his head. And he decides to go to Los Angeles to visit a friend of his, uh, a guy that he had gone to, to uh, school with, played by Scott Bakula. And he is Dr. Robert Moore, Bob Moore. So when he gets to Los Angeles, things really start to get... Uh, steamy, I would say. And uh, while there, he finds himself caught up in a murder and a psychosexual uh, nightmare, I think uh, is a good way of putting it, when his friend, Scott Bakula, Bob, is murdered. Uh, and then he takes over Bob's group, his group. And I, I, I'm, I'm struggling because this is actually a, a, a very over-plotted movie on a certain level. And so I'd <laughs> yeah. rather not get too deep into it. But <laughs> but basically, I feel like we're going to really hash out everything here. We're going to have our own like sort of like therapy session and trying to pick apart this movie. But from there, it's, it's intrigue, it's drama, it's sex, it's violence, and I think some sort of offbeat comedy as well. But it's got a really great cast. But that's what I brought, 1994's. Color of Night. All right, Ryan, what about you? Instead of thinking about it metaphorically, I decided to riff a bit literally on the idea of water and the dangerous qualities of water. And I came across this film from 2013 by the artist Kevin Jerome Everson called The Island of St. Matthews. The Island of St. Matthews had its genesis when Everson was speaking to his aunt about where their family heirlooms and old family photographs had gone because he had never really had access to them. And she had said they had all been lost in the great flood of 1973 in Westport, Mississippi, where her family was from. Everson himself is from Ohio. So what he decided to do was head to Westport, Mississippi and sort of explore the ripple effects of this flood, both on the community and then the way that the area itself is structured that involves, you know, spending time at a lock and dam and learning about the floodgates and seeing how they work, how that process has gone through. And, you know, in terms of how the film works, it goes back and forth between people reminiscing about that flood, about their experiences with flood, about just their time in general living in Westport. And then it also crosscuts with very contemplative images of people and their 
relationship with water or just water's own relationship to the landscape. There's not necessarily always people in these shots, but we get such things as people using water for recreation, such as a, a water skier who we return to quite frequently in the film. We see the extended process of the lock and dam and seeing the rising and lowering levels of water. And we just, we get a little bit of everything in this film. And it's, it's a, uh, it's a very brief film. It's a mere 70 minutes. One thing we'll get into when we talk about it is the way a lot of critical writing on the film has responded to it as if it is this overlong, exhausting experience. But I mean, I personally walked away from this film thinking uh, it could have been six hours and I would have been uh, just as satisfied and just just as pleased because it's a it's an extremely beautiful film to look at, to live in. And it's also a particularly nice film uh, for me just to watch on a cold, rainy day because the film has this warmth to it. And I could feel like I could almost taste the thick, warm southern air that um, everyone is sort of breathing in and just like living through in this in this wonderful film set near the Tumbigby River. But that is The Island of St. Matthews from 2013. Very nice. So I was thinking, you know, reaching as I often am, uh, thinking of the gauntlet double features we do, and I think both of these films have, you know, a sort of cosmic and metaphorical sort of use and depiction uh, of water. And we get the sort of water as a destructive force, but also, of course, water as life and, and rebirth and rejuvenation. And that's actually a, mm -hmm. a strong common link between these two completely, <laughs> uh, you know, unrelated movies in every every single way. But there are recurring shots of people being baptized in the island of St. Matthews. Um, and just as in the sort of like last act of, of Color of Night, we are treated to like biblical rainstorms that you know, kind of signify this this grand rebirth that's going on uh, for some of the characters. So uh, there's an interesting link there. That's a really good point. There's just a significant <laughs> amount of rebirth happening in The Color of Night that I hadn't considered until just now. Just thinking about all the different fluids as well. Um, like I mean, well, sure, there's the erotic fluid, but there's also blood. There's like sort of baptisms in blood. There's paint. I wrote, uh, I wrote, you know, water is is something we can't control. Parentheses: a flood, sex, emotion, tears. Uh, these are all things that we're yeah. we're experiencing. Uh, uh, in these films in relationship to, yeah, our sort of like complex relationship with water, this thing that we ne need, obviously, but also uh, that has darker memories and connotations. You know, Bruce Lee's whole uh, philosophy was be like water. And in part because, you know, water's fluid, it's, it's flexible, it moves, and yet water is also potentially one of the most destructive elements on the planet. We often think of fire as far more destructive, but but water in the in the macro sense is, I think, far more devastating. It is something that has the potential to heal and also to to swallow up, to consume. Mm -hmm. I mean, I find water to be so peaceful and relaxing, and it's one of the funny contrasts even now with all of the rain out here in the Pacific Northwest is 
so lovely to watch when you're sitting in your apartment and looking out the window and having it sort of soothe you while you're nestled with a book. But then you're getting reports that Vancouver is cut off from the rest of Canada. And you're like, <laughs> oh, oh, God, you know, like this is what I'm I'm relaxing, listening to this like horrible destruction. And I mean, that's clearly a quality that's in the island of St. Matthews is most of the shots of water are extremely peaceful. But all the discussions of water are about the damage that that it's caused. So, yeah, that contrast is ever present. Yeah, and I think we should start there as a sort of appetizer, you know, to tackle the shorter film first, because it is a meditation, uh, you know, more so than the the thriller we'll we'll deal with in the second <laughs> half, and and that's what I, you know, first thing I noticed about the film is it even just starts with yeah, like water as like a compositional element of the film, right? Just looking at it move, looking at it, you know, the light reflect off of it, especially in these sequences of the guy water skiing. Uh, and I should say, you know, I grew up uh, summer vacations in Indiana. I'm a bit of a bit of a water skier myself. Uh -huh. And so I very much appreciated uh, the recurring figure of the skier. I've never water skied. I would really love to, though. I feel like I that I would I could be okay at it because I've done skiing on the on the snow. <laughs> well, they're a bit <laughs> different. Yeah. I, I'm sure they're radically different, but I feel like if uh, of all the few, the very few sports that I feel like I could actually excel in, and I feel like water skiing, I would have the um, the courage to like put a bit of effort into it. Yeah, let me tell you, for someone who has tried to water ski and wakeboard many times, uh, it's way fucking harder than it looks. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. Yeah, I've swallowed. I've probably swallowed, you know, more more lake water and and river water than I've I've certainly skied on. That's for sure. <laughs> just dragged behind a boat, face first in the water. Well, the guy in the film does a pretty good job, even though each sequence with him does end with him uh, eating water. Well, you got to at out. some point. At some yeah. point, you're going Yeah, down. you can't just go on forever. That's true. <laughs> but that's funny, you know, in talking about this meditative quality of the film, it, it, the idea of him going on forever does not sound unappealing to me. And it's funny, you know, I, I've never seen a, an Everson feature before. I've seen a lot of his shorts. But even in reading about, about his work and particularly about this film, uh, one of the most constant things I read was people complaining about the durational aspects of it. Even if they were people who in their writing seemed to be referencing figures with um, a great deal of reverence like James Benning or people who do dabble in durational cinema. And I guess I was just a bit perplexed by that element because I don't understand why you wouldn't enjoy watching such beautiful like 16 millimeter footage of this guy water skiing like I was never bummed when he came back on screen I, I thought it was extremely pleasant and it like gave me time to think about all the things that were bookended by those water skiing sequences just thinking about the types of reflections people in the town had and I guess I was just curious for both of you what your emotional or aesthetic reaction to those water skiing sequences were like I mean in 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 the bigger sense you know for me going even beyond just the the water skier uh, but yeah. The, the entire film and the criticism that you're bringing up, because I, I certainly engaged with some of that myself and was a little, I wouldn't say surprised because I, I think I fully understand why certain people would look at a film like this and want nothing to do with it or bang their head against a wall. Um, not from my perspective, but I understand why other people do. And I think this mm -hmm. is a conversation that we've 
we ourselves on this podcast have sort of had before about some of the other films, talking about James Benning's work earlier. And I think that, you know, there are films, there are cinematic experiences that are created um, so that we look inward while we're engaging with the film. And I think that there are a whole bunch of people who, you know, when they're when they're asked to do so or when they're you know given the opportunity to do so, they just freak the fuck out. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't understand that like the film is on a certain level inviting you to also create, you know, that that you sort of are um, encouraged to to take part in you know, what is being built here. Right. Time, space, and memory is for me the the like ontological intersection of of being, right? Of of existing. And certain films that that really engage with with that, like this film, uh, like James Benning's work, you know, they they want the audience to do that. They want the audience to to say, hey, think about when you were on the water, you know, uh, where where are you going with this? You know, reflect on your own life. Uh, and, and I think that just people sometimes, they just can't handle that, you know? And like, again, I, I guess I, I understand it. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's beautiful that films like this are are made because it is such a different mode of, of, of cinematic experience. Language. Right, yeah. language, yeah, yeah. everything. Yeah, and I think, too, you know, as always, it's like the tyranny of narrative. Uh, You know, a lot of people have never realized that you can just, like, enjoy texture and movement and shape and light and these very, like, basic elements, and you can appreciate them on their own terms, you know? And obviously there is, like, narrativizing in this film. He is jamming on floods and water and our relationship to it, but also it's just, like, beautiful light hitting water, like, it looks nice. It's like looking at a painting. Yeah, but I think that's key, too, just in the sense that he's trying to show you that an area like this, like a small community in Mississippi of all places, you know, along this river, like, is also – can be aesthetically beautiful. And, like, a, you know, he's he's giving a lot of aesthetic weight to the location of a location that might typically – be forgotten or like not be in the public eye as, you know, a, a smaller black community in the South. Yeah. And com- compare the spaces of this film and how they're depicted to the the spaces of, you know, Hollywood in The Color of Night of Los Angeles, <laughs> you know, and uh, how, how, you know, glamorized uh, it, it can seem at times. You know, a film like this comes along, which which is inviting us to appreciate the beauty of the world as it as it exists, you know, and mm-hmm. and people just they they can't really wrap their head around that. They they really just struggle with that. Yeah, it's funny thinking about both of these films together with one film trying to capture the natural beauty of a small town in Mississippi and then the color of night with the uh, radically larger budget trying to purchase beauty everywhere it can find in Los Angeles. Uh Yeah. Speaking of purchasing, I think uh, one of my favorite parts of the island of St. Matthews is the flood insurance sales pitch. Um, Because we should say that, you know, this film oscillates at a kind of, you know, experimental and documentary mode, right? We've got long durational shots of water and other nature elements and then we have interviews of people reminiscing and we have 
Uh, also verite sequences of, you know, a guy working the locks or a beauty school. But the flood insurance mm-hmm. sales pitch, you know, uh, I think is a really great kind of cheeky scene because like I really do appreciate how this film just again, it just like is and it doesn't force any connections between these things. Like there's mm-hmm. no summary at the end. There's no clear connections between a lot of the stuff that we're seeing. And yet Again, it gives you that space to connect them and to feel them, you know, all jutted up against one another. Um, so, yeah, in this one scene, right, it's just this woman, like, going over all the details and all, like, the, oh, you know, different policies and different red tape and different intricacies of, like, what's covered, what isn't covered, uh, all the different sort of things that can happen. And and it really does set the tone for the kind of mood of, of the reminiscing that's going on in this film, which is this traumatic event that happened and people still remember it for the most part, like it was yesterday. And they're still thinking about it today as the guy who works the locks even says, yeah, when it rains a lot, people are calling us to this day being like, is it going to flood? Is it going to flood because of this thing that happened in 1973? Right. And we're in 2013 and the fear of the devastation, you know, that has happened to this community several times, not even just once, is again, this thing that persists through history and through these spaces, as you were talking about, Andy. Yeah. I mean, uh, as Bergson says about memory, you know, the, the past is what we make use of in the present. And I think in that moment, you know, it, uh, you described it as sort of like cheeky scene with this insurance salesman, but like, that's entirely it, you know, for someone like that, for this insurance salesman, it's like a slam dunk in an area like this to, to <laughs> simply conjure up memories of, yes. you know, the, the recent past, you know, in the present to, to sell a fucking policy to these people. You know, and and sort of dangling that kind of act of God over their heads, right? Like, yeah, when she's talking about the different zones being at different rates, and there's this implied element of like, well, you're in a danger zone, you know, like, yeah, and also there's like a an interesting element of like, I think class that that certainly mm-hmm. emerges like in that moment as well when when she starts talking about the different you know, different prices of certain homes and what you can expect to get for them and, you know, comparing the home that they might live in to, say, a million-dollar home. And and you can really see it, I think, in the couple, you know, who are being sort of sold this policy on the couch as their eyes kind of glaze over and they they just think about, you know – what they're worth suddenly, you know, compared yeah. to maybe what other people are worth in other areas and in different socioeconomic zones and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because isn't the specific comparison like she starts talking about like, well, you see, you know, the policy only covers up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars, but let's say you had a million dollar home, who's making that up? And this couple's like, what do you mean a million dollar home? Yeah. 250,000. What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, you see, like, the guy suddenly <laughs> think about a million dollar home in his head and realize, yeah. you know, he, he doesn't live anything like that. You know, it's like, oh shit, you know. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of very clever, a lot of clever moments in this film that, you know, aren't being gift wrapped. They're not being spoon fed to you. It, it, again, it encourages you to take part in, in what's going on the same way that, you know, the people of this film are are doing so. You know, there's a lot of moments where people are 
you watch people go into their into their into their memory palaces, yes. you know, into their minds. Yeah. And in in some cases, you know, it's never even really explicit, but but you see pain, you see sorrow, you see tragedy that at times is is incredibly haunting. Yeah. And you also see the reverse of that, which are these kind of like uh, opposite reactions. Um, there's a really great scene where he can just like really rapid fire interviews a bunch of people outside the St. Matthew's Church, where the film gets its like name from. And, you know, it, it, it's a range of reactions as he just sort of goes around being like, yeah, were you here for the 73 flood? You know, what was it like? And one woman is like, I don't want to talk about it and like shuffles off, you know? And then another woman is like, My name is Juanita Everson. And I remember the 73 flood and I was just married. And Rose's department store and Sears department store so sheets and towels and clothes for 10 and 25 cents each. And that was a wonderful thing because a lot of people lost everything in their homes. They lost family pictures and heirlooms. And that's the important thing because I'm a shopaholic and I started then. <laughs> yeah. uh, which is amazing and then there's the other guy who's like oh I haven't lived here since then but yeah I was a teenager and I was really into boats so I actually thought it was like really cool there's a lot of animals but you have to be very careful the snakes also inhabit the ground area so uh, it was really refreshing when I was a teenager because I I like boating, you know, so it was fun to me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> just like yeah. a twinkle in his eye, like. Yeah, that sequence is really incredible. I mean, yeah, just having the one woman walk off or at least just like conclude her interview herself, you know, she's not waiting to be asked a follow-up question because there is that pain associated with the flood. And then to have someone else immediately afterwards be talking about how Rose's department store was was selling sheets then for 10 20 cents like you you wouldn't believe the the deals we were able to get so and there's so much implied there right yeah. of of capital using a situation like this in order to get more people into the into the store and then like charity as advertisement because yeah what what is this woman left with she's left with this shopaholic addiction in the back of her head you know she she laughs it off but it, it, her saying that is suggesting that de the department store had its intended effect of its charity yeah but also again i think too reveals like in a in a in a sly way, like the true cost of a lot of fucking shit that we buy that's marked up like a thousand percent, you know? Like yeah. if at yeah. a certain point a store could be like, well, we'll still make something off of, you know, selling clothes for for you know a couple dimes. Like, is that really what this shit actually costs? Like so again, I think there's a lot of like moments where you are encouraged to yourself, like reflect on things like value, <laughs> whether it's sheets of JC Pennies or a home or <laughs> or the you know one of the most remarkable interviews of the film is the old guy with the Bible and the sunglasses and the missing arm yeah. because again he and the Obama hat and the Obama the Obama <laughs> it's a full hat. outfit yeah yeah he's he's a cool looking dude and he talks about how he lost his arm in a factory incident. And this comes later in the film. And I was thinking again about, right, like the value of things, including him, you know, as a person, right? And he talks about how he lost his arm in this accident and then worked construction the rest of his life with one arm. So again, there's obviously, yeah, like a, a class 
element to this film. And on the flip side, the people, when they do talk about the flood and reminisce about it, yeah, they, they reminisce about like the, the destruction, you know, the stuff it it destroyed their homes, you know, for the most part. But we're also told of, you know, great acts of community, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, everyone would go up to, you know, this person's house, which was on a hill and, you know, would take everyone in, in these like recurring flood situations. And, and yeah, we do hear about so much like people communicating and helping each other in these dire circumstances. Yeah, I think you're hitting on something uh, important there with the the value that's placed on objects and materials and then also the values on what we're worth. So when you're comparing the way that the there's the former construction worker who had to work with one arm up until his Parkinson's became too extreme that he could no longer work and then throughout other portions of the film, they're spending so much time talking about all the things that were lost, heirlooms or appliances or, you know, televisions, televisions, the gas heaters. When you hear these scenes of people talking about gathering together and, you know, oh, the house on the hill, like people would store their appliances here. I would have people bring their expensive things and they would leave them in my house because there was a much better chance that those things wouldn't um, get washed away. There's just something I really like about the film where it doesn't show us any footage, whether footage exists, or at the very least, it doesn't show us photos of this devastation. We're not seeing houses that were torn apart. We're not seeing soggy furniture. We're not seeing, you know, beds and couches floating down the river or anything like that. There's just talk of objects and talk of materials, but instead we're only witnessing people, their stories, and the way that they are taking care of each other. I really like what you said there because it's also something that really struck me when um, in a lot of situations, there were many people who brought up, you know, one of the most devastating aspects of the flood being the the loss of family photos, particularly, you know, when you're talking about like, uh, there are no images of the flood and stuff like that. And it's like, so many of these people were also devastated by just the fact that they lost photos of of loved ones of the past. And it it I, I particularly like reflected on that and and the the sorrow in losing certain things. And again, I thought of, you know, memory and how this flood, aside from wiping out, as you mentioned, you know, property and objects and items and, and heirlooms, there's also this sense of people losing their past, you know, mm-hmm. losing their their legacy their history their history yeah. yeah that these floods come in and and just sort of like wipe the slate clean for an entire community you know that no one it seemed to exist before this flood right or that the, whatever existed before the flood is now gone and we have people who have to start that over again and now without those photos they they have to rely so so much more on their memories themselves of what a great grandfather might have looked like you know and and does that image start to simply fade out in our memory without mm-hmm. a photo and it seemed like that was just so upsetting for so many people that you can buy another gas heater you know and yes that's a devastating thing to lose you know or or your nice leather sofa but you know your your grandmother's face seems far more un irreplaceable loss. Yeah, you can't get that discounted at Rose's department store. <laughs> no, no. No. 
Um, and I, I also want to bring up one of the recurring formal sonic elements of the film, which is the church bell. Uh, that also creates this kind of eerie connection between things. And Everson is often using this church bell sound to intercut or to bridge, you know, the gap between sequences or scenes. And this is, as it's revealed in the credits, uh, a constructed object for the film. It was not just a bell that was in front of a church, but a bell that he built and put in front of the church and asked the pastor uh, to ring for him as he shot it. Uh, but nevertheless, right, uses it um, in a really interesting way, yeah, structurally to, yeah, kind of echo this sort of like memory loss and this collective loss that haunts the film. But I really, what you guys are saying like really highlights for me what I found fascinating, right? Is like this film is is so much in the present of 2013 and yet so much of the past is conjured up and like real memory, like it's just a memory in this film, right? We don't see it. You know, he could have found footage. Like there's a point where, you know, mm -hmm. the, the one guy says, oh, I was living in Detroit in 1973. I saw the footage on TV, you know, but Everson is completely just like, he's there, he's looking at it now. So for him, it's, yeah, also like a family storytelling exercise, right? And I think there's something really interesting about the way he is narrativizing all of this. And when you mention the fact that in the end credits, it's revealed that the bell was constructed, there are some other things that the end credits reveal about the film and his own authorial imprint throughout. I mean, I noticed it said there was a costume designer who is credited for the film. And you have to wonder exactly what that means. Well, I don't know, like what constitutes receiving a full costume designer credit. Or it's just for the skier, because that's also credited as being a construction. Yeah, a water skiing instructor. And, you know, at first glance, my initial reaction while watching it was I thought, sure, this is this is someone he knows who water skis or he just like got permission from someone who was out there water skiing. But instead, yeah, there's something implied that that was a construction of his. You know, he as much as he is kind of stepping back and not adding in a ton of stuff to the proceedings and staying so much in the present, he is still finding a way to create like a very quiet narrative that runs throughout the film. Well, memory is a creative act. Memory mm -hmm. is a creative act. We, we reconstruct in our minds. Um, and when we share those reconstructions with people, that's, you know, taking that creative act within our mind and, and externalizing it, performing it, or performing memory. So from my understanding, the, the director even sort of shies away from the classification of his work as documentary. Uh, he mm -hmm. himself is sort of reluctant to accept that because of how much is clearly a a creative act for him, you know, in 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 putting these films together, in constructing these these portraits. Portraits. I mean, yeah, yeah it's like portraits know, of but... community, portraits of labor. Exactly. Yeah, there's threads that run throughout all of his work that I've seen, at least, um, that do seem to come not simply just from observational qualities, but from an actual narrative impulse that he is creating a larger scale portrait of working communities in America. Yeah, I think too, again, that that is what um, might also frustrate certain dum-dums 
you know, who engage with things like this because there's this oversimplification. I mean, Marsh, I, I know you and I have talked about this in our in our history classes, the sort of retrograde act of truth that suggests there's there's two cinemas. There's there's fictional cinema and there's documentary cinema. And it's existed that way since the Lumiere brothers and Melier, yeah. <laughs> you know, that there's just these two sort of threads. And so it 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 seems for so many people that, you know, it's either uh it's either an Avengers movie or it's a documentary. And a documentary <laughs> is is the truth, it's history, it's informative, whatever. I remember a few years ago at DePaul, we had Julia Oreck uh, visit and she was showing one of her films and some student in the question and answer period asked her, you know, what do you think uh, could help a documentary become more, you know, popular, I guess, in the mainstream or some dumb question like that. And her yeah. response was, stop calling them documentaries, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I, I love that because yeah. it, it, it does sort of pigeonhole then I think certain people's false understanding or expectation of what they think a quote documentary is um where you know this isn't trying to be a history channel program on the flood of saint matthew like that's not what this is that archival footage is of no use here for what the the director is trying to achieve and i think right. again it's like people bringing their expectations into something and then you know what they wanted well if you want to know fucking more about saint matthew's flood go read the fucking wikipedia page or whatever right like yeah they hear documentary and they think there's all these rules put in place like imagine you know coming in with a very clear idea of like okay this is a film about the flood in westport mississippi you know i've got an idea of how this will work and then being so perplexed as to why there are extended sequences in a cosmetology school and watching someone just getting their hair cut and their hair washed, you know. Mm -hmm. But again, if you look at it from the context of what he's doing, there's so much there. There's um, just the visual reference of baptism of someone getting their hair washed, you know, being draped in like these robes. There's there's so much there on like just surface level signifiers and on an aesthetic level. And then there's also so much beauty implied in the process of the ritual aspects of, of work. The scene where the old woman at the beauty school demonstrates how to put on the towel and the bib, I don't know. Whatever the, you call something you put on. So, yeah. <laughs> a poncho, you know? Yeah. The poncho, um, the haircut poncho. Yeah. yeah. She is like very old and with just like ruthless precision wrapping this guy up. Uh, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. And he's such a good sport too because – she is, uh, you know, she's definitely lost a step or two in her old age. Oh, yeah. She's struggling to get that thing on. It's a yeah. beautiful moment. You know. She has that amazing line when she's folding it over and she says, like, no reason to spin this around. We got eyes in our hands. <laughs> you know, like, you know, for me, part of the joy of these films is like looking inward and, and reflecting on my own experiences in life and. And, you know, engaging with the film in a sort of like conversation. And uh, I was sitting there, you know, as a, as a man who's been basically bald for many years, reflecting on like, wow, I can't remember the last time somebody put one of those on me and shampooed my hair. And I was thinking of the sensation of that and how, how it's one of the nicest parts yeah. of the haircut itself. You Very know? pleasant. Yeah. And yeah, you talk about like rebirth, you know, and that's sort of what a, what a haircut is. Yes. It's this, you know, old you goes in. New you comes out with a with a fresh fit, fresh look, new trim, you know. 
<laughs> well, look, dude, if you miss that sensation, we can get you baptized. I mean, yeah, we, we, we certainly could. <laughs> we certainly could. Just a nice dunk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a nice dunk. I know the answer to this question is probably just silence, but during those baptism sequence, I was wondering like, what the appropriate thing is to say after you've been dunked and you come back up and like kind of get the water out of your eyes. I was imagining you know, them saying, okay, now you're baptized. And what I would say which, if I was in that situation, I'd be like, thanks, guys. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, like, thanks. For the dog, I, I would <laughs> praise the Lord probably. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's true. Say, say. Wouldn't be thinking about myself, Ryan. I'd be thinking about <laughs> Lord. You wouldn't be thinking about the new you, the re, the reborn you. I kind of feel like after that, I would love to go have some like wings, you know, like oh, an experience yeah. like that. <laughs> I just love to to scarf down some chicken wings. All right. Well, I have to ask you guys, what was your favorite ten minute long shot? Because there's two, I think, and it's the one near the locks where it's sort of like sunset and kind of like drizzling. And then there's the one where you just watch like the water fill up for like 10 minutes. That one. The, <laughs> that, that blew my mind. It was kind of like an optical illusion, wasn't it? Like, were you guys tripping out during that shot? Well, this, that's the thing, because the camera's not locked down. So that was like a really fascinating, yeah, an optical trick in a way. And I mean, the film is never locked down on a tripod, but there is the... I actually thought the water was the water level was going down. Um, was it in fact going up? Mm-hmm. Were you able to tell for sure? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, then that I mean there you go. I mean that, that's my favorite shot then because it completely fooled me into thinking it was something else. Um, and even though my brain thought the water was going down because the camera was moving up and down, because I, I was trying to lock onto specific things. There were like pieces of metal in the distance that were, I thought, you know, a good way to measure where the water is. But then I kept, you know, looking around the whole thing because there's just so much to like look at and absorb, as simple as it is. But I felt that that shot being 10 minutes long provided a significant deal of weight to the presence of water. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, it was specifically in that shot when I was thinking about how we started this conversation um, with what you mentioned, Andy, about how water is this destructive force, but it's also something that provides all this life because this was specifically at the lock and dam. This is where boats are coming through, all this cargo. Um, and this is just like a natural process of life here as society has been set up around it. but. There is that fear that this water could just get too large. These levees could break, these lock and dams could break, and all of this could get washed away. Well, and also the implication that the reason they had such bad flooding in the past is because there wasn't infrastructure invested in this community, right? Yeah. So that's another yeah. thing that haunts the film. Again, this is a an underprivileged black community in Mississippi. They were not given protection by the government for something that continually happened from the 1800s well into the 20th century. Now they can kind of control it. And they've only had like one kind of bad flood in like 1990, I think they said. But otherwise, it's been pretty solid now that 
they've harnessed, you know, or like put at bay this destructive force, right? So that was another thing that I was thinking about during that uh, hallucination of the water filling up. Because it really does look, Ryan, like it looks like the like the ground is like going down, but it's the water going up. Like <laughs> right, it looks right. like the earth is, is moving. Um, and it's, yeah, just this like bobbing shot of like, you know, water, yeah. just water filling up. Pretty great stuff. Yeah. yeah, it felt like the camera was like partially in the water, even yeah. though it never goes over the lens, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I found myself even trying to imagine what the what the actual setup was behind the lens, you right? know? Like, yeah, if he was in a little boat or something, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And worth yeah. pointing out, too, as it fills up with water, it then cuts to the baptism, and then it cuts to the guy in the tower, then it cuts back to the baptism. And it is like, yeah, this... This moment of life, you know, as the water fills up. And maybe this is just me idealizing what I saw, but being the lock and dam operator seems like such a pleasant job. Yeah, it's like the guys in Canal Zone in the Wiseman right. where, like, they just have, like, this huge control board and are just, like, looking at all this cargo and just, like, pressing buttons. I'm like, that does look sick, you know? Yeah, I love when he essentially just pulls the lever and then we sit with him as he just watches is yeah. the lock and dam opens. I was like, yeah. that looks great, you know? <laughs> just pressing a button and watching that thing move and it's just loud and big. It gets you a new job. Yeah, I mean, that... Yeah, I, I've been wanting to spread my wings and maybe I'll just end up working uh, in the sound as a lock and dam operator. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, what an important job that is for this community as well. He's sort of this this uh, protector on high, if yeah. you will, you know, because there are the guardian other shots. of the water. Yeah, he's in his like command center and, and he's checking the water levels and all this stuff. And then again, as you brought up, you know, Someone who has to reassure the community, put people at ease and, and, and let them know that they're safe. You know, it's a, it's a very important role that he plays in this community. In a seemingly thankless job. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Totally. Not here, not yeah. in St. It Matthew. seems like lonely too, you know, because he's just like, yeah, you only see him by himself up in his little control tower and like walking along the the galleys or whatever. Yeah. But in general, this the 16 millimeter film stock gives the film this this like kind of timeless quality in that I found myself questioning like when this was all taking place, right? That it's, yeah, it is, you know, the past and the present uh, totally sort of overlapping uh, one another, you know, working together. And it wasn't until like I saw the dude's Obama hat that I, I really, you know, was reminded again that this is like, this isn't 20 years ago. This isn't 30 years ago. This isn't 40 years ago. This is ostensibly now you know right. that so. i mean that's the beauty of 16 millimeter i think everything should be shot on 16 millimeter <laughs> I, I think it's it's the ideal format you know got to get that university of virginia money that that he gets to to shoot all these projects on 16 could you imagine the color of night shot on 16 millimeter <laughs> yeah i was going to say would be sick. there's no mistaking what year color of night came out in it could only <laughs> no have way. been within a about a five-year window. Uh, there's no <laughs> a doubt. distinct sheen. Yeah, it was funny watching both movies on the same day and watching something as contemplative and um, 
beautiful as Island of St. Matthews on, you know, this this timeless 16 millimeter and then hopping into the mid 90s, 35 LA sheen of a woman with like smeared lipstick uh, filleting uh, the barrel of a revolver. I was like, here we go. Welcome to the gauntlet. <laughs> yeah, baby. Let's party. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is uh, no. This is the work of a of an AIP legend, not a not a contemplative artist. Uh, no <laughs> yeah. offense to Richard Rush, the legend himself. Obviously, yeah. There's a, a bit of a tonal whiplash in in talking about these two films, right? <laughs> this was my first time seeing uh, Color yeah. of Night. Same. I I quite enjoyed it. I gotta say, I I jived with it because it is as ludicrous as it is, as stupid as it is. I think there are genuine emotions in the film, uh, and it's also just yeah. This uh, if it took it one step further, it would be like Wild Palms. Yes. Yeah. That- <laughs> that was one of the first things I thought of was Wild Palms. And it's funny when we were watching it, it was probably around a little over halfway through. I leaned over to Molly and I said, you know, if this was in Italian, I was watching this with subtitles. I'd probably be saying this is like a masterpiece, you know, because it made me think of that conversation we had about um, the Wellman film Track of the Cat and the idea of, you know, Bertrand Tavernier getting really high in the French Cinematheque and seeing a subtitled print and being like, it's like drier, you know? And, <laughs> and there's something about being an American that makes it a little bit harder. And see, th- this felt like a more extreme version of the experience of showgirls in a way. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're doing the same thing, but there is something about how you can understand the American public's almost emotional inaccessibility to the experience of showgirls because it's too close to us, you know? And there is something about the color of night that felt like that a lot throughout, especially with all these like group therapy sequences. Even though there are all these great performers that I love, I was just imagining that. But the experience for me, a distancing effect, it's not in English. I think I would have surrendered myself to it just a little bit more, Mm -hmm. you know? The first time I saw the split diopter, I was like, ooh, all right, all right. And then I saw it again, and I was like, okay, this is a Raul Ruiz movie now, (laughs) like in my mind, you know? And that was, for me, enough to unlock it because it has an extremely playful visual style and sense, obviously in the classical mode, but it's, yeah, it does have its excesses uh, and its oddball choices. And I think that's one of the things I appreciated is just the way Richard Rush shoots the modernist mansion that Bruce Willis comes to inhabit. I found all that to be particularly engaging the way it's blocked. And especially, yeah, I mean, he's throwing out split diopters every five minutes yeah like he is sparing no expense in doing the whole you know you want an erotic thriller like well we're also going to be looking like through a fisheye glass of like 16 images of bruce willis or whatever (laughs) yes spinning around (laughs) yeah it 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 is a very flamboyant visual style and i guess to just like cap off something i was saying before about it is i've seen a lot of comparisons of the film to brian de palma and maybe people have made this comparison before but really to me the closest way i can describe this movie is as if Showgirls was a giallo. Yeah, that's good. You know, <laughs> that L.A. excess that uh, Showgirls deals with in, in Vegas. And, you know, I think it's important to point out to people as well, you know, that there's multiple versions of the film. Uh, there were multiple versions that were released even like con- 
contemporaneously, like when the film came out. I mean, it was a very troubled production and an extremely troubled post-production. So much so that the battle for control of this film, like, ultimately resulted in Richard Rush having a, a nearly fatal heart attack. <laughs> and it was the final feature film he made, and yeah. he wasn't that old, you know? But it it's basically the film that that in one way or another, like almost killed Richard Rush physically and certainly killed his career uh, <laughs> creatively and professionally in Hollywood. But, right. you know, the 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 uh, Andrew Vina, the the producer, like looked at his initial cut and and clearly just like you know, he wanted a streamlined cut. And there were, of course, concerns about the sex, the sex, the sex, my God, the sex. I mean, the first time I under, I heard about this film was because I heard that it was it was a film in which you got to see Bruce Willis's dong. You know, you got to see right. the, the the you know Bruce Willis's Willie, so to speak. And that's you know what kind of initially put it on my radar because I love Die Hard and I was like a big Bruce Willis guy when I was like a teenager. I just loved Bruce Willis. So I was like naturally I gotta I gotta I gotta see the full Bruce Willis, you sure. know. But <laughs> the completionist. <laughs> it had a very troubled post-production. There were multiple cuts, and the the compromise, I guess, was that you know Vina in in the United States they would release his cut, uh, an R-rated version that was roughly about two hours, and yet internationally, the cut that we watched was released. You know, the the so to speak director's cut. That's actually what like what was it like two hours and twenty minutes? Oh yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I obviously haven't seen the two hour version, but I could only imagine it's just like pretty disastrous to watch because I I wouldn't call the film that precise. However, I do think it's very purposeful throughout and the idea of removing 20 minutes from it probably just turns it into like a lousy film overall. I think the excess is part of the the plan here and part of the charm yeah. here and to remove yeah. the excess from this film uh, is to remove, yeah, the reason why if, if this film works at all or is pleasurable at all, it's because of its excessiveness and it's kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, you know bloated insanity <laughs> yeah it's it's uh, it's an all-out film and and we should introduce I, I suppose at this point the group therapy element of yes. the film because Bruce Willis Bill Dr. Bill goes through this traumatic experience right and he goes out to LA to sort it out did you notice just very briefly who was driving him to LA uh, his taxi driver on yes. his way to the group therapy it was a little, little friend from our last episode Samad yes. from the Beast of War yeah. uh, Eric Avari mm -hmm. yes playing up a, with a, an extremely exaggerated Indian accent. Yes. Um, it does in that moment, especially after, you know, just putting the two films back to back, uh, I think like show you like the, the, the real sadness of being a quote ethnic actor in Hollywood where you can yeah. in one picture be given a, a, a quality role and, and a, a character with depth and then you know, six years later, you're you're a, a ornery Indian taxi driver. Yeah, racist depiction yeah. of a taxi driver or whatever. Crazy. But yeah, you know, he I think it's important to point out as well, following that traumatic event in the beginning, that Bruce Willis's character, Bill, uh, is struck colorblind. And this is a, a, an important visual motif that we'll 
will carry out throughout the film. But but it's kind of a cool shot in the beginning oh, where yeah. where this woman suicide, you know, yeah. throws herself out of the window. And it's quite an impressive like dummy fall from you know it's quite high. A very tall building in New York City and looked pretty good as far as dummies hey, dropping Richard 30 Richard Rush is no stranger to stunt work. Absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, even talk about like visual motifs when she's falling and it almost seems like she's reflected and replicated on all these square glass windows in the building. It really looked quite a lot like the 16 Bruce Willis's in that piece of glass that he's spinning inside of um, oh, his, yeah. his friend's his friend's house. But yeah, and then I guess the other really notable thing is when she collides with the ground, when she finally hits, she's actually landing on us. Is She's like crashing into the camera and the blood is like smearing over the lens, which is like a sheet of glass that's in front of it. And then fades, the color fades out of it, right? It goes from, from, from this yeah. like bright There's like an overhead 360 spinning shot where the blood like loses all of its color. You know, these are the kind of like flourishes that, that I'm talking about with its kind of like mm -hmm. formalist excess kind of smuggled into this sleazy erotic thriller. But these are very inventive ways of shooting this sequence oh, yeah. um, and so right then the color goes away uh, and that yes is a, is a big part of the film not that we as viewers are colorblind necessarily but it does visually play with with that idea and that motif because obviously we can still see red when he can't yes right anyway we should introduce the group ther group therapy team because mm. uh, that's such an essential part of the film as <laughs> the first night that Bill gets in he goes to see his old pal Bob and he sits in on Bob's Monday night group therapy session the famous Monday night group therapy <laughs> session oh, yeah. and this is yes where uh, the the cast comes out really right? opens up we have Sandra played by Leslie Ann Warren who is I suppose a nymphomaniac and a kleptomaniac, and a kleptomaniac. we have Clark played by Brad Dorif, who is the extremely OCD lawyer uh, who's always counting the books on the shelves. We have Buck, played by Lance Henriksen, this sort of downtrodden man with a mysterious past uh, who has endured a, a recent trauma that he's trying to get over, the loss of his wife and daughter. Uh, we also have Casey, as played by the legend Kevin J. O'Connor, who is mm -hmm. a rich kid artist who's into motorcycles and BDSM. <laughs> uh, and I think that's the group. Wow. And then, and then of one. course, <laughs> there is Richie, who is a young teenage boy struggling with gender dysphoria and other uh, anger issues, speech-related issues, uh, you know, a, a troubled past of this teenager Richie, who is this sort of the cagiest member of the, of the group, right. as it and were. And then I guess it's worth pointing out that when I was watching the film, I had a very similar experience as your description just now of the the cast where it's like, okay, here's this person. That's Lance Hendrickson and there's Kevin J. O'Connor and I'm recognizing all these faces. And we get to Richie and I go, who who on earth is that performer? So I looked it up. Oh, and then uh, yeah. 
had fuck because no. I like I you We're know bury like, the lead big time here, folks. Yeah, and so I had the uh, ending of the film spoiled uh, the moment I was introduced to Richie because I was like, who is that actor? But you know. I- I'm glad you bring it up because, you know, this is one of the major criticisms that was leveled at the movie by a lot of people was that it is so fucking, you know, painfully obvious. Yeah. You know, (laughs) as far as like who Richie is to most people, you know, especially when you go through a cast list with so many very recognizable and distinct personalities and, and performers that we then have Richie who just looks fucking so artificial and plastic yeah covered with makeup in a weird way yeah. and clearly wearing a wig and all these things teeth uh, prostheses and yep. yes mm-hmm. an obvious wig and a very uh, mismatched voice for the, yeah. the the physical presence that richie gives off and so there's been a lot of people who've said that you know they criticize this movie by saying that it's, you know, it's a it's a thriller and a mystery without much mystery to anyone that's actually like has a pulse or something. But again, yeah, <laughs> I think that that's part of the joy of the film, part of the excess of the film. It's it's missing, as you said, Ryan, I think just one little layer of of irony or parody or, you know, self-awareness there, uh-huh. you know, because there's another character that comes up later that specifically comments on that. You know, in a very, I think, kind of comical way to the group therapy session, you know, to the people of the group therapy session. Well, yeah, I don't think whether or not this film like works hinges on whether or not you figure out what's going on with the Richie character or what's going on with the Rose character. Right. Some films are whodunits. Some films are how catch Some films blend <laughs> the two. And this film sort of blends the two. And whether or not you can suss out what's going on, you still don't know the why or the how or those things are still yet to be uncovered. It's almost weirder that a lot of the movie, you as a viewer are kind of like ahead of it. Yes. And the way that makes some scenes feel like is is pretty extreme, I think. And, And of course, like just Hollywood artificiality. Yeah. Right? And I think that the film does revel in that because, you know, Richard Rush, you know, I mean, he made Stuntman, which is a film that I think is one of the the, the better satires about, you know, Hollywood artificiality and, oh, yeah. and excess and layers of construction and that sort of thing. So I, I do believe on a certain level, like Richard Rush is aware of that, you know, and he's uh-huh. he's playing with that. Uh, I don't think Richard Rush here was trying to craft, you know, a tightly conceived and plotted uh, mystery, you know, that's going to make everyone slap their forehead and go, my God, you know, I think that part of the joy, as you said, Marsh, is that that we, the audience, are rolling our eyes and, and going, oh boy. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's well, it's, it. I mean, it's introduced very early on when uh, Bill is shown to Bob's house, you know, before Bob is murdered. He's showing him around his house, which is like, like I mentioned, this like modernist, you know, all white mansion with like abstract expressionist paintings on the wall. And the minute they get in that house, you know, it's like, oh, how's your divorce? You know, how's all this going? And Bob's like, yeah, well, I got, you know, got this this uh, thing on the side. Well, she like designed this, you know, because Bruce Willis is like, you know, 
modern art, huh? You know, <laughs> what's going on here? And he's like, oh, yeah, you got this, you know, got this, this, you know, thing on the side or whatever. And right when he said that, I'm like, boom, you know, like, all right, let's go. Here's like the, the sexy thriller element. But then it like withholds that kind of like for a while. Yeah. So it does make these things obvious. Like when they're all dating the, the same person or whatever, like I think, you know, the, the viewer is ahead of the film on that, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Anyway, we should explain all of this, right? So the, the group therapy, uh, crew is very volatile and uh, so following you know the following day Bob Scott Bakula is murdered in his office at the end of the work day he's stabbed over 30 times in this vicious sort of like shadowed hooded attacker sequence again very very much like you know Argento Giallo style you know oh, yeah. we have the black leather gloves and the and the knife you yes. know yeah like fetishized certain objects and lingering on them. And it is a, it's a pretty horrible concluding image to the murder as well as Bakula is like thrown through the office door and splayed out with like a gigantic shard of glass sticking through his belly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty horrifying. Oh, like yeah. it, it's really extreme in that moment. They have like um, an Assassin's Creed type blade in their arm that they used to kill him with too, which was pretty funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is like, it is a, it is a, like you said, it's a very like brutal and vicious scene. And I think again, for me, that's part of the the excess of this film is like how many times it just like shifts into like an entirely different mode of cinema, oh, yeah. where we go from you know this this psycho thriller to a a you know Jalo style murder scene to later like some crazy car chase sequences to, yeah. to odd kind of dark comedy. Yeah, buddy cop comedy, right? Because yes. so right after the murder, we're introduced to. Lieutenant Hector Martinez as played by Ruben Blades. And he is, of all the actors, certainly going the hardest. Oh, yeah. And, and he's the, his character is written the most explicitly humorous as he is uh, basically like uh, a fascist police officer uh, <laughs> who likes to, you know, wisecrack and insult people and yes uh denounce the the miranda rights you know yeah. uh and stuff like that he has like i was when i was writing my notes i almost wrote down every single line that he said because every fucking word that came out of his mouth was was like funny and particularly like how he delivered his lines you know uh, I mean, right off the bat, when he's introduced to us in his office, he's just like screaming at another cop who like opens the door to give Bruce Willis a cup of coffee with this just wild eyed fury. And he's like losing it. I mean, he's like, he's got like bags under his eyes. He looks 
so insane. And it's funny because he's commenting on therapy and how he thinks therapy's bullshit. And he's calling this like group of people cuckoos and daffodils like throughout the movie. And yet he is like one of the most unhinged characters, which again, I think is like, that's so much of the comedy of this film that can like emerge if you like accept it, you know? And it's like all the layers of lunacy, you know? I think that's like Bruce Willis's character is trying to escape this traumatic thing that happened to him. And at every turn, he's meeting just like more and more <laughs> deranged people. Yeah. I mean, that's like truly what this movie is. It's like Bruce Willis gets to know like a dozen just insane people. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And and how that affects him and, and makes him very horny as well as a result. Um <laughs> Like right after that, when, you know, Lieutenant Martinez goes with Bruce Willis, you know, to search Bill's house, you know, and he's looking around the house and and he comes across Bill's bed and Bill's bed is this very elaborate, you know, headboard with like a, a woman's face and a couple <laughs> of like, you know, rings to be shackled to it, you know, for sort of like, you know, S&M kind of shit. He looks at the bed and he goes... Check this fucking bed. Damn. Everybody's having fun but me, goddammit. <laughs> you know, like, I just, like, love it. Of course, when Bob is murdered, Bill is pressured into taking over the group therapy sessions. By Martinez. By Martinez as a way to nab the killer. Because they're all pretty certain that the murderer is amongst the Monday night group therapy session. And... Will Bruce Willis, of course, reluctantly agrees to take over the group and help Martinez conduct the investigation into Bob's murder. And as this is going on, we got to put the final piece of the puzzle on the table here. He gets into a little bit of a car accident on the streets of L.A., a bit of a fender bender as this beautiful young woman rams into him. And they exchange information, and from that point on, she starts to materialize in Dr. Bill's life seemingly out of nowhere uh, and becomes uh, this, yeah, last piece of the sort of Bob's murder puzzle that's being put together as she inserts herself into his life for reasons we don't really understand. Mm -hmm. It's quite an introduction as well. So this, uh, this woman is played by Jane March and she, she introduces herself to him as Rose. And, uh, you know, she is, uh, just this sort of in, uh, Bob's own words, this sort of angelic figure, you know, and, and he has these kind of weird moments where Bruce Willis has this like internal monologue that he, that he speaks out loud uh, whenever she does seem uh-huh. to materialize, where he like narrates her walking into the frame and, and describes her presence. Here she comes, weightless, hanging from the sky, wearing a short dress of indeterminate color. It's red. In this very like corny kind of way, you know? But again, I think it's like a, also red is like this play on the typical kind of like noir voiceover that instead of him, you know, it playing uh, 
you know, non-diegetically for all of us. Like it's 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 him like leaning into it and and just spitting that hard-boiled voiceover out. Here she comes, floating on air, you know, or whatever the yeah. hell he says, you know. But yeah, so I mean, it turns out though that not only is Bruce Willis having some fun with Rose, but she in fact is having fun with everybody in the group therapy session. Yeah. And that sort of becomes the the threat that hangs over everything is how she ends up being seemingly there's all these doppelgangers for Rose that are showing up. You know, as we were talking about where it may be quite obvious to anybody who has a pulse is that, you know, she has multiple faces. She's she's putting on fronts. She's kind of invading into everybody's lives and sort of taking them over with her own erotic energy. <laughs> yeah, because she certainly she certainly takes over uh, Bruce Willis's life with that erotic energy uh, immediately. Yeah. And it is very... I would say relatively quick in the film that we're treated to like one of our first major sex scenes uh, and and the most notorious sex scene of the film. So she does again just materialize in the middle of the day at, at this house and they just like get to it. And, and this is really to me where, you know, I was trying to nail that prompt of dangerous when wet in my own kind of like sick twisted way because this sex scene is gnarly and you know people talk about the the 10 minute sequences uh, and sequence shots of uh, of St. Matthew <laughs> the island of St. Matthews well get ready for like a 10 minute sequence of just some gnarly softcore Hollywood fucking. And it is so <laughs> in the pool, in the shower, all over the place. It was funny <laughs> I when when we were watching and uh, Molly made a joke, uh, she's like, I don't know, dangerous when wet, I'm not seeing it. And then literally seconds later, it was Bruce Willis walking into Bob's house and he slips on a bunch of water that had like flooded the home because a hose was left on. I was like, ah, dangerous when wet, yeah. don't you see it here? Uh, but then it is, yeah, it's extremely clear in that sex scene that the, um, you know, this woman, She's bringing a lot of danger into everybody's lives. Uh, There's a lot at stake. And a lot of water as well. Because that's when she first materializes is right after he slips on the water because someone, she, has placed the garden hose like by the door. Uh, And then all of the sudden she's there out of nowhere. And I do want to point out they do have one kind of like tasteful dinner where they get to know each other. And I do want to just bring it up because in that scene, they're using like star filters like a Fassbender sequence. So again, to me, like so much of this film feels European and they're like shooting Rose like in the same fucking filters as like Veronica Voss or whatever, where the camera's like (laughs) at the dinner table and every candle and light is spraying like diagonally, you know, uh, in, in these shots. Yes. And we see her also like oh, in the reflection yeah. of a, of a mirror behind him. Yes. Know? So again, they're playing with these, yeah, these surfaces and things aren't what they seem. Exactly. Yeah. I think that Rush is jamming on so many things that he likes, yeah. you know, that he's seen in all of his years as a sort of like weirdo Hollywood, you know, film rogue or whatever you want to call him. Yeah. And it's so like, everything is just jammed into this film. Like every scene is, is kind of like him trying to do someone else's thing, you know, and, and then tie it all into this big messy fucking (laughs) epic of, 
of sex and lust. And I mean, this has got to be the biggest budget he ever had, right? So it's interesting to think about because I know I haven't seen his earliest films, but I know he started out as a new wave inspired, like independent 50s, 60s filmmaker yes. kind of guy who just like got into independent production in that sort of spirit. So it doesn't surprise me that, yeah, having lived this long and storied life as a kind of, yeah, like AIP rebel filmmaker, indie filmmaker, now he's got this huge budget and he's just putting everything oh, in yeah. this movie. Yeah, he's pulling all the stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a $40 million budget. Oh, and, um, my yes. Let me tell you, they, uh, it's on they, did not, they did not make that back. It is. <laughs> That's the thing. When we were talking about the excess being necessary to the viewing experience and how that comes across, it's like for, for the 20 minutes that are being cut out of the uh, th into the theatrical cut, I can only imagine that's a couple million dollars that we're losing because <laughs> oh, yeah. that money's on screen the whole time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's also a Columbo reference right before the big sex scene because Ruben Blades shows up at the house to sort of grill him. Who is our man? Help Holy me. Cop, figure it out. You know what I think? I think it was you. You got the look. That's right. Yeah. I've been talking to people who knew you both. And everyone says there was a weird competitive thing going between you. Yeah. That's right, there was. I admit it. It was on the way up and I was on the way down. Yeah, including <laughs> splat. It unhinged you. I bet you've seen every episode of Columbo, huh? <laughs> uh, and that's like right when all of a sudden Rose shows up. And again, in this like cheeky visual form, I love what, what they do where like, yeah, she comes out of nowhere, just very erotically charged and they just embrace. And then the camera just does like a snap zoom out to reveal the pool behind them. And then they kiss and like fall in the pool like fucking Hannibal and Will Graham or whatever. Uh, very dramatically. And then, yeah, we get a bunch of, yes, you know, peak 90s. Uh, softcore Hollywood stuff. Sweaty. Yeah, sweaty. Fucking. We're in the shower. We're in the pool. We are indeed dangerous when wet. And and we should, <laughs> you know, uh, again to you know to, to help build Andy's case here uh, as to the its appropriateness. Uh, Water is not just an incidental element of Color of Night. It actually is a motif uh, and one associated in particular with uh, her character, but also other characters, as we learn, have a relationship with water, specifically the Lance Henriksen character, Buck. Uh, is sort of traumatized by rain because his wife and daughter were murdered in a rainstorm that he was uh, also present in. So we get a lot of water. And I love, again, you know, when movies like this that are set in Los Angeles have so many, like, torrential downpours in them when you consider, <laughs> again, yeah, the fact what? that it never fucking rains in Los Angeles, and yet this yeah, movie not has... not like that, either. No, this movie has, like, four fucking huge thunderstorms in it. Right. And they're very... Again, like, the artificiality comes out there. Like, there are so many obvious lightning strikes like being manipulated on set you okay. know like so we do then begin this phase where bruce willis 
uh, now is is sort of committed to this investigation, and and he's sort of being manipulated by Martinez, uh, who who like Columbo seems to keep showing up to kind of pester him and and encourage him along, and and he starts meeting with the group therapy members one by one, and everyone seems to start pointing fingers at one another, which adds to the 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 question of okay, well which person is doing this. And we get another murder at this point when Casey, played by Kevin J. O'Connor, as we said, is murdered in his artist's loft by presumably the unseen person who he's been having, uh, uh, yes, like a BDSM kind of uh, relationship with. And that was a really clever use of Bruce Willis's colorblindness because when he does go to see Kevin J. O'Connor and he arrives at the murder scene, he initially slips and falls and he's running his fingers through what looks like could presumably be paint. We know he's an artist. We know he's a painter and it's like silver paint. But then as it's dripping and I was thinking as, you know, when you had started this conversation about the idea of baptism and rebirth and all this water, it is like this baptism in blood, mm. he realizes the the gray, silvery paint turns to red, and he's sitting in the the big blood pool of Kevin J. O'Connor's fluid. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it's it's very visually like dynamic. There's some really good mm-hmm. flourishes, like Marsh said. Reflecting on like the excess that we've been talking about in the budget, I just like I just remembered as well. Like, there's so many asides in this movie, like during the course of the investigation, that are just like again themselves like so bloated. Such as when uh, there's like a particular point during this investigation section of the film where uh, Bruce Willis goes to Martinez's house, the cop barbecue birthday party. It's just like a moment of exposition, right? Where where it's clearly in the script, like okay, they. Check it, they're checking in on the case. Bruce Willis goes to Martinez's house, and there's just this huge birthday party taking place with like 150 fucking people there. They bring a stripper in on a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, the cops like show up with a with a helicopter, and there's a, a woman disrobing on the helicopter above them. There's a full mariachi band, there's a huge buffet. And I love the fact that like Bruce Willis gets a plate and and fills up a plate at the buffet <laughs> during this moment of like <laughs> discussing a murder that's taking place, you know? Yeah, it, the instinct to like fill a, a, an innocuous scene of exposition with like just a bunch of life going on, like it really does remind me of of yeah, that kind of like AIP vibe. Following this murder, that's again where when things take uh, an even more sort of like troubling turn for Bruce Willis when even more characters become implicated in this in this crime, including Martinez himself. And that's when, you know, in the rainstorm, he goes to Buck's house and Buck reveals that perhaps his wife and child's murder uh, in some way, shape, or form is associated with Martinez because Buck's wife was having an affair with Martinez. We discover that Buck used to be a cop himself and that he and Martinez were partners. So from this point, you know, Bruce Willis really is spinning, you know, and the last thread that he 
uh, tugs on is Richie, right? He sort of worked his way through each of the characters, each of these members of the group session in interesting ways, and they all point fingers at each other. You know, it's it's got to be Clark. Oh, it's got to be Buck, right? Maybe it's right. Martinez <laughs> himself, you know, something like that, right? And then finally discovers that Richie has a very interesting past as well. And, and we haven't learned much about Richie, but he uncovers a connection to a previous therapist that Richie had, a Dr. Needlemeyer. And this is, you know, where the plot really starts to get very bloated with a lot of details and extra characters. (laughs) But then he meets Richie's brother. Dale. Dale, right? And Dale, more or less, is saying, you know, back off of Richie, stay away from Richie. And again, for, I think, eagle eye, eagle-eyed viewers, you know, as soon as Dale emerges in the picture, now everything might start to sort of come together, you know, because there's something not quite right with Dale himself. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. And this is when, you know, you'd previously sort of mentioned as well that we finally get all the characters back together and... If you've been paying attention, you would probably have connected the dots that Rose is sleeping with every single other member of the group uh, individually under the name of Bonnie. They all have this this scene where they they talk about, you know, their ideal partner and each of them, you know, reveals in sort of intimate details this perfect woman that they've found and uh, and then <laughs> a picture is is shown and and uh, they all pass it around and they're like, that's my Bonnie. It's like, no, this is my Bonnie. And yeah, we find out that Richie, having been participating in these group therapy sessions, came to figure out, you know, exactly what everyone was looking for and then decided to play into that. Or not, because. Uh, I guess that was something I was confused about. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because essentially it's revealed that it isn't Richie slash Bonnie slash Rose at all, but it is Dale, the brother, uh, who has been doing it. And Dale has been preying upon anyone that 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 Bonnie Richie Rose seems to get involved with. And that's why in the 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 visage of Bonnie at a certain point when she's having a an intimate kind of sapphic moment with Sandra, uh, she she stops her and says, you know, I'm cursed. Anybody that I get close to, like something horrible happens to them. You know, anybody that I I develop intimacy with seems to, to disappear and I don't want that to happen to you. So I think that what ultimately comes out is that, you know, Bonnie is like trying to have this sort of like romantic connection, like is trying to love people who are broken and give them something altruistically, if you will, or self-serving, but in a, in a, in a not murder way, you know, in just sort yeah. of like a, a sex and romance kind of way. Yeah, because ultimately sure. what Dr. Bill discovers in his blundering investigation is that Richie as such does not exist. This person known as Richie has been dead for four years. And we have met Richie's brother, Dale, the overprotective furniture maker. But they also have a sister, we learn. And that sister, of course, is Rose. And so when Richie died, Dale made Rose become 
Richie. And it become became this sort of like tortured, you know, Frankenstein situation with psychological abuse. None of it makes any fucking sense. No. And it's like totally <laughs> ludicrous yeah. and and yeah. frankly outrageous. <laughs> um, yeah. In the best way possible. But yeah, I, I yeah. didn't. I didn't hate it, you know, uh, in that sense per se. I was just like, wow, whoa, oh, you know, like okay. And so we do get yes, the dramatic sequence where like Doctor Bill has figured it out and he goes to the furniture factory to confront Dale. And then what follows? I mean, the film talk about shifting modes again, Andy. Like it turns into a horror film, and it's shot like one and lit like one. As he enters the furniture factory, there's all these like, you know, totems and like pieces of furniture that are like gothic or religious that are like functioning like a fun house. Yeah. And I sort of, I mean, this whole movie is a fun house. Oh yeah. Uh, and then we get the climactic, yeah, the fun house sort of. Uh, shootout where people are shooting nail guns at each other. <laughs> and I love it that because, nuts. dude, yeah, the, the, the nail guns, because at a certain point, like, poor Rose, she's so tortured by what's taking place that she decides she needs to kill herself. And so she just, like, sticks the nail gun, like, underneath her chin and is going <laughs> to sh shoot herself in the head with a nail gun. Because I was thinking about the physics of that, and I was thinking, like, Sticking a nail gun under your chin, like it probably would just nail your mouth shut. It's not actually gonna go straight through to your brain, you know? I know, but at the same time, they were like presenting that nail gun as if it had an unbelievable <laughs> yeah. amount of force. Yeah. Like they, he fires the nail gun at Bruce Willis and it hits him in the arm and it literally pins him to the yeah. wall. Like he's unable to get up. And so the idea of the nail being that long and that powerful from that distance to pin Bruce Willis to a wall. Had had that nail gun been loaded, I think the nail gun would have shot through her skull and just like went to the ceiling. <laughs> that, that's in those terms, yes, Ryan. Then yes, I'm, yeah. I'm fully with you on that. But unfortunately, <laughs> the nail gun was empty. There's a great moment when you think that Bruce Willis is licked by Dale and then all of the sudden out of nowhere Lieutenant Martinez comes in and then immediately gets his entire hand nailed to the wall. <laughs> yeah. I mean it is to me a very funny and fun like climax. I was laughing cuz oh, yeah. again so it really does kind of make a mockery of the whole thing and I think as it should, yeah. you know, there is a little self-awareness. Uh, in it, but it's also playing the emotions kind of straight as well, which makes for quite the tension and, and, and kind of uneven experience. You yeah, know? I feel like with this movie in general that some of the actors really get it. Like some of the actors in their performances are like are getting it and they're they're playing it up in certain ways that like just enhance the experience. Ruben Blades, for example, I mean the the group therapy. Uh, like are some of the most fun sequences just because of the oddball actors. You know, this is a collection of some of the like, you know, oddest character actors uh, in you know, recent Hollywood history. And they're all kind of like leaning in heavily to their characters. But I think part of it is that Bruce Willis is playing it very straight. You know, he's playing it very earnestly. And I think if, if you had an actor in that role maybe, who was a little bit more of an oddball, goofy himself, then I think the film would go that extra bit. But it's like, it's all being anchored all sort of by him. And he is seemingly, I think, for the most part in the film, playing it very straight, you know? He's, he's, 
he's not quite on that level. You know, he is trying to find a sort of like dr- dramatic truth in all of this, if you will, you know. And find his emotion and his heart again after his traumatic experience, which he does. Ultimately, on the roof of the furniture factory, which is some sort of like devil-worshipping station from what I could understand. (laughs) Yeah, that, like, soars above the clouds. They, like, ascend this tower and, like, the clouds are all below them and and it turns into this, like fantasy Los Angeles as there's a storm and it's it's yeah, that's, bizarre, that's bizarre tower. Rush doing his vertigo moment at that point. Yeah, you know, yeah I did it's the write bell in my tower. notes like full Hitchcock, you know, they're climbing up the ladder. There's a horrible like obviously fake rainstorm going on. Yeah. Uh, there's obviously a mat in the background oh, of yeah. the you know shot of the tower and I, I really was like, yes, he's, this is the vertigo moment uh, and that's really how it concludes in this in this this vertical moment as he uh, attempts to save Rose from throwing herself off the building thus mirroring the opening of the film where here now Dr. Bill uh, has regained his humanity and he saves her in a dramatic Hitchcock hanging off the side of the building uh, series of shots it's raining, lightning is striking, and finally he can see color once again as he sees the red lantern on top of the furniture factory. Physician, heal thyself. Yes. He has his moment. Yeah, and it's, again, like we mentioned, uh, that moment of rebirth in, in, in water. I mean, it's pouring rain as they are both resurrected, you know, essentially. Yeah, most of their interactions take place in or around bodies of water. Uh, they're in a pool, they're in the bathtub, they're in the shower, or they're just laying next to a pool. They're in a rainstorm, you know? They're, the ocean's in the background, you know? It, it is, again, I think to the prompt and as we've been discussing this suggestion that, you know, for both of them, you know, being connected in this water, there is a sense of of rebirth, of purification, of of past sins and traumas washing away, if you will. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I will say I, I, I did walk away um, surprised that I like really really thought we had finally reached the point where I'm like, okay, there's no way that these films have anything in common. I mean, but again, you you could really, if you have a single thread you can hold on to and then you pair things together, there's something there. And that was, um, yeah. (laughs) That's right. A lot of, a lot of sweat, a lot of tears, a lot of rain, a lot of tubs. Like we did it and we got, you know, we got floodwaters as well. Yeah, this is the one time, though, I would also say, you know, to our listeners that watch both these films, um, but don't watch them together. Just take our word for <laughs> what made them an interesting pairing. Watch them on your own time in their own time and space. <laughs> so, yeah, this is what we we unearthed. Um, Marsh uh, from from the deep seas, from 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 the big pools of water. These are the films that we uh, fished out. Um, what are some other films that are appealing to you that you find dangerously wet? I literally hadn't thought of anything until just this moment. <laughs> However, the first thing that popped into my head right now 
streaming on the Criterion Collection. Frank Perry's The Swimmer from 1967, uh, an appropriately dangerous when wet uh, situation, I think. It's a film where Burt Lancaster stars as a uh, sort of well-to-do Connecticut man who's enjoying a little backyard swimming, uh, who decides in a sort of poetic uh, surreal kind of idea to swim across the county uh, through everyone's swimming pools back to his home. And as he does, he encounters figures from the present and the past, and the weather seems to be changing, and seasons seem to be changing as the film progresses. Uh, and it's this, yeah, very like surreal and poetic and kind of amazing, like tour de force Lancaster performance as this, yeah, broken uh, <laughs> American uh, man, essentially. Uh, yeah, he's essentially hopping into every pool hoping for a brand new rebirth, but the whether the rebirth comes or not, I guess, is, is up to debate in that film. Yeah, one of my dad's favorite movies. And I should point out that I almost chose a Burt Lancaster film myself. I was going to uh, have us watch The Crimson Pirate, oh. which is a great Burt Lancaster yes. kind of dangerous, wet movie. Uh, very acrobatic, <laughs> young Burt Lancaster. Love a swashbuckler. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I love watching that guy hop around. Yeah, we'll throw, yeah, Crimson Pirate on the recommended list as well. Good call. Give you two wet Lancasters yeah. for this week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, it was my topic this week, so that means uh, next week it is Andy's topic. Yeah. What's going on? Well, um, we are going to have a guest next week. Oh. We're going to have a good friend of ours, a good friend of the pod, a man by the name of Alex Sherman is going to be joining us. And he has been granted the honor of, of selecting next week's topic. And, you know, as I mentioned, he's a, he's a very good friend of ours. And it's, it's been a while through the trials and tribulations of the last two years that we've all been able to just sit down and have good conversations about films together. So he has selected a film uh, topic about just that friends, the pals. So bring us movies depicting friendship in all of its glory. Wonderful. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Flood insurance actually started back in 1968. And the reason was, okay, you had your hazard insurance in place, but when it's something major that occurs, you know, the insurance company were not prepared to do that. So the federal government stepped in and they decided that now it's time we actually need a federal mandated policy for flood insurance. Now you have different flood zones. Uh, basically you have a preferred zone, which is called X zone. And then you have the higher risk area, which are AE zones. AE zone, of course, is gonna be a little more expensive. Now what's happened in this area is basically they have built the river up, they build areas up, they put in ditches so that it's not as bad. So now this particular property is in the X zone. Now, since it's in X zone, your mortgage company may not require that you have it, but there's still a chance that it would flood. So that's one reason why I wanted to actually try to offer you the protection to have in case there's a flood. Well, the same thing I told you in the beginning is rising water. So if the water is a lot of rain, 
you got the coast there, the Gulf Coast there, water is coming up, it's actually causing the damage. So the whole scenario there was hazard versus flood. And most of the situations turned out to be that it was actually flood insurance. So they either had it or didn't have enough.